Hi, I'm Will Ross. My co-host Devin Scott was on vacation when this intro was recorded, but you'll be hearing him on the main episode in just a moment. This time around, we're talking with Mike Thorne, an author, critic, and all-around horror aficionado, about the subject of his master's thesis, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, and how it plays with an absence of knowledge and a fear of knowledge. It's all about not showing, not telling, and not knowing. Welcome to Film Formally. Today, we're here to talk about John Carpenter's movie, Prince of Darkness, with Mike Thorne. Mike Thorne is a scholar, a teacher, a critic, a writer, uh, who has a particular specialization in the realm of horror. And we're going to be talking today about the idea of not showing things and not telling things. It's about the idea that you withhold information from the audience with your techniques. And it's about the idea that you purposefully omit information from the audience that would give them knowledge about the film or the film world or the ideas of the film. And this intersects neatly with a major aspect of Mike's thesis on Prince of Darkness, which is the idea that it's very difficult to talk about negative knowledge, to talk about the absence of something. Does that sound like a fair characterization of uh, your thesis, Mike? That, w- that was definitely one of the big conundrums I had with my thesis, is how do you produce knowledge about the negative? And I also wanted to think about the relationship between fear and knowledge. So I, I wanted to define epistemophobia, I guess, on two main registers, um, which was uh, the idea of this kind of um, phobic, neurotic, straight-up fear of knowledge, but also the idea that coming into contact with knowledge um, is horrifying in itself, and also that um, knowledge has these profound limitations, and that's also terrifying. And I think Prince of Darkness is getting at that, the the kind of fallibility of different knowledge systems, science, religion, philosophy, etc. Yeah, uh, Prince of Darkness is uh, John Carpenter's theological existential horror film. Um, in, in which a, in so many words, a team of scientists, physicists, and theologists, and one priest, they all converge on this one church in which uh, essentially uh, Satan exists in liquid form, <laughs> who is trying to um, escape so that Satan can um, let the anti-god into our world to begin a reign of um, anti goodness <laughs> um it's uh, i think the best way to explain it is that john carpenter takes all the most horrifying parts of quantum physics and all the most horrifying parts of catholic theology and mashes them up into uh, the most horrifying possible apocalypse scenario um it's the second of his apocalypse tetralogy along with the films the thing in the mouth of madness and cigarette burns it's a profoundly existentially horrifying work mike i'd, I'd like to hear Maybe in, in in basic terms, how the film connects to um, epistemophobia. I guess one of the key things with Prince of Darkness is that it's um, de- very much building on the philosophy and fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. John Carpenter cites the story The Outsider as um, an explicit influence on the film, um, which climaxes in this um, 
protagonist of unknown origins and, and unknown identification facing his reflection in a mirror. Um, and that's the climax of the film. So it initially seems like it might be a kind of work of gothic horror in which the, the horror is interior. But Lovecraft suggests, I think, something a lot darker about our um, confrontations with what we perceive to be material reality. So I think um, Prince of Darkness, by um, emphasizing that which is negative, so antimatter, um, that which is most chaotic at the basis of quantum physics, um, it kind of destabilizes our customary views of uh, material reality. And ultimately, like, although there is this kind of theological tenor to the film, even like that which we assume about religion is kind of upended in the film. So Satan possessing this kind of physical form, um, Jesus Christ returning to Earth as an alien to warn human beings about um, this impending apocalypse. It kind of, yeah, destabilizes our understanding of various, I guess, uh, theological and scientific systems of thought. I don't know if any of that made sense, but... Totally. And I think this is maybe most crystallized in actually the very ending of the film, (laughs) where um, even our understanding of the stakes of the film turn out to be both wildly miscalculated and completely unknowable, right? Um, I I think part of why the film... at least the film gave me nightmares. Uh, it's the first time in a while the film's given me nightmares. Um, usually it's reality that does it now. What really, I think, caught my imagination at least was that the fact that the ending is so... Per- it's one of those perfect moments of complete unknowability. The, the last scene of the film is kind of bridged by another form of this transmission that is sent from the future to various characters to the film. And I think part of what's so haunting about the ending to me is that it actually revises... <laughs> the transmission um, it, uh, where um, what's happening is ostensibly folks in the future are sending the subconscious transmissions uh, to unconscious people in the film. And we always see this kind of um, the church door that, that we're very familiar with. And there's a figure who looks like kind of a, a big robed satanic figure right in the doorway. And then that exact same shot is then revised in the final moments of the film to be Catherine Danforth. And it's not a reveal, it's a revision because even the shape of her figure is very different. And I bring this up not to like spoil a twist, I just did. That was the first thing that immediately came to mind to me when I, when you, Mike, brought up the idea of kind of um, epistemophobia and unknowability, where the film deliberately feeds us contradictory sources of information throughout to make an actual full understanding of the contents of the film completely impossible. Yeah, and at that last scene as well, that ends with this kind of like, where the mirror becomes like kind of a membrane between the audience and the the film as well, with um, the protagonist Brian reaching toward us, toward the movie screen, as if the film itself is kind of ushering us to believe that there's like... um, there's this kind of metafictional awareness too, which John Carpenter, of course, expands on more in, on In the Mouth of Madness and Cigarette Burns. But the audience becomes kind of ushered into the horror in that final scene when it's, it appears as if the screen is like a membrane between dimensions or, or universes or something like that. In the Mouth of Madness really literalizes that too. Yes. Because In the Mouth of Madness, essentially, in, the characters go insane by realizing they're in the fictional universe of an author. And at the end, the audience is even implicated in their role in that by the character sitting in a theater (laughs) and watching discombobulated snippets of the film we're watching. That device Carpenter kind of develops throughout these three films of not implicating us in a moral way, but implicating us in the fictional world he's created um, to essentially 
Skeros. <laughs> I still actually I don't have I don't necessarily have I think a firm grasp on if John Carpenter has an agenda beyond that in terms of he wants to impart some more metaphysical questions on us or if he is using metaphysics and metatextuality to just scare us more but if it's the latter he's doing a good job at it yeah for my for my part i think the films tie into each other and into the themes of carpenter's other works too cleanly for me to think that he he doesn't have a, a wider agenda i think um at least Prince of Darkness, uh, <laughs> I definitely, I, I think it's, I, th- I actually think the thing and Prince of Darkness are, are fascinating because I would argue they are pessimistic, but they're also totally, completely, perfectly ambiguous movies. Yeah. Uh, well, I think back then, back when we watched The Thing for the first time, you were like, this is maybe the most perfectly ambiguous ending ever. And I think, <laughs> um, you know, because you're not given enough information. Um, to understand whether it's, you know, um, to understand what's to come, right? You're given exactly the amount of information you need to not know that, um, and but still to know the stakes of it. Yeah, but every possibility is equally interesting. That's what yeah, for me right? makes it perfectly ambiguous. Although Prince of Darkness, I think, is less ambiguous in that I can't think of a good possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Like, best case scenario, this man is horrifically traumatized for the rest of his life um, and is going to be, you know, and is broken. Um, And that's by far the most optimistic ending of optimistic reading of the ending. Worst case is you can't avert the apocalypse and we're all dead in 1999. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Magic 8-Ball comes up outlook not so good either way, for sure. Yeah. I was gaming out ways you can interpret it in a more specific way. I'm not going to go into, but it's so fascinating. We've kind of alluded to different parts of Prince of Darkness's plot. And and to get a little bit more specific for the purpose of what we're talking about, this priest who has the knowledge that the devil is in this tube in a chapel in the basement of his monastery ends up contacting his scientist friend, this uh, quantum physicist, and saying, I need your help. And the quantum physicist says, okay. And he brings a ton of other students and fellow academics, other scientists in for a weekend at the monastery. And it's as they're staying there and trying to procure all this data and slowly uncovering information that Satan, the liquid in the tube, starts spraying himself out of the tube and into people's mouths and possessing them. And then the people who are possessed go on to kill everyone <laughs> that they can and try to activate a portal to an anti-realm to reach the anti-god or the devil or whatever you want to call him. And at first, only small squirts of liquid are shot into people's mouths. But there's one character who almost the entire tube is shot in directly into her mouth. So when she awakens, it's heavily suggested that she is like Satan. She is the physical manifestation of Satan himself. But that sort of laying out the details of the plot synopsis in mind, I wanted to talk about some of the specifics of how Carpenter holds back information. And one of the first things that I wanted to talk about is that in broad terms, there are three spaces in the film. There's the big upstairs room where it's a big open space and like there's a couple of rooms off to the side that have that are windowed so you can see into the rooms easily And there's all these computer parts in the room. And it's an eminently, obviously, clear space. It's easy to look at and navigate. And Carpenter even, he has these Steadicam movements through the space when it's being introduced that are following the characters from one end to the other. And I want to come back to those Steadicam movements because I think they're very, very interesting. 
in in contrast to how he films and introduces the other major spaces. The polar space is in the basement, which is in the chapel where Satan is being kept. And it is, I would call it a monosemantic space, if not a dogmatic space, where it is a simple, clear, open space. There are tons and tons of crosses and candles, but they are all pushed off to the sides of the room. And the only two things within the room that aren't beside the walls are a little lectern with a book on it and the big Satan tube. Then between these, to get from the room on top to the room at the bottom with Satan in it, there are these corridors and there's all these rooms off to the side of the corridor that are kind of sparsely populated with furniture. What's interesting about the movie in terms of how that top space with all the lab stuff and all the machines is introduced is that those Steadicam movements are so careful to like set up the space of the room. And often that's a technique that directors use in order to set up later action. So a good example is in Saving Private Ryan, the first beach scene is pure chaos, but the climax of that movie, which is a battle in a village, is ac- it's actually important that you can follow where the characters are, what they're doing, how the plan is going well or not. And so Spielberg sets up the scene with the characters literally laying out their battle plan. There's all these camera moves. He like carefully lays out the different spaces and where they are relative to each other. But in Prince of Darkness, when Carpenter is using these Steadicam moves to lay out the space really clearly, you might think, oh, like, okay, so he's setting up that this character can hide behind this table or under this window and could make a break for it across this space. But he's not doing that at all because no action ends up transpiring in that space. There's scientists who discuss things and get more knowledge about the plot in that space, but there's no actual danger ever within that space. It all happens within the corridors or within that bottom space. And what's interesting that to that about me is this is an example of Carpenter technically showing us and telling us, right? Like giving us information, but it's knowledge that is specifically not useful. The knowledge that he gives us about the space on top is superfluous, is not necessary to the actual process of action in the film. And he doesn't do that in the other spaces. The other spaces are overwhelmingly simple dolly moves and static camera placements. Um, I have a note that's kind of about um, sound preceding action. It's not as much about space. Um, uh, oh, hell yeah. So, okay, cool. Um, I was thinking specifically as I watched rewatched the film, we were talking about Alice Cooper before we started recording. I think uh, the, the murder scene with the Alice Cooper character is particularly interesting uh, for that formal effect. Particularly, it's interesting that uh, the graduate student who's stabbed with a broken bicycle by Alice Cooper, um, he as he's approaching the uh, a crucified pigeon outside of the church, we can hear on his, his earphones that he's actually listening to an Alice Cooper song. He's listening to the song Prince of Darkness by Alice Cooper. So this is an oh. interesting moment, both metatextually um, and in terms of kind of ushering the viewer to um, maybe anticipate that something bad is going to happen involving this character. Um, and it's a very, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a subtle sound cue, but I think at the time of release, maybe audiences more generally would have been familiar with the, the song and the album being played in that scene. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. And that's one of a couple, there's another moment where sound is really interesting. And you highlight this moment in your thesis where there's a character who is killed early on in the film, Windham, 
uh, when he he decides that all this is bullshit, like, okay, Christ is an alien, and we're discovering that Satan is in the tube downstairs. Uh-huh, right, I'm not staying here all weekend. And so he leaves, and he's quickly killed. And later on, well, this comes right after all these scientist characters and the priest are in a room, and they're pooling knowledge, and they're realizing the stakes. They're They're sort of beginning to internally accept, as one character puts it, it really is old scratch knocking at the door. But they what they don't have any idea of is like what their role is in stopping it. There's there's no understand. They're just gaining knowledge about the situation. They're not even beginning to think of any form of resistance to the forces that are beginning to come their way. Then Catherine Danforth's character is standing at a window and she tells everyone to come over. And as she's standing at the window, we hear this garbled hello, hello, over and over. And we hear this sound before we see Windham standing outside. And it turns out that he's, you know, possessed now. And he says, I've got a message for you. Pray for death. And then he collapses to the floor. And it's revealed that his and everything inside his skin is hollow. And it was a bunch of beetles who were holding him up. But what's interesting about this scene is its use of de-acousmatized sound. And acousmatic sound in film, uh, Michel Chion wrote a lot about this, that it's the idea that the source of the sound is clear. We see the thing, we know that it's making the sound, and if there's a deacousmatized source, then either we hear the sound and we can't attach it coherently to a source, or we see a sound source and we can't figure out what sound is attached to it. it in, in any case, it's a division between the source or potential source of a sound and the sound itself. So an example is in The Wizard of Oz when the big fake wizard is speaking and he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And then when they pull back the curtain, it turns out that it's just like a regular dude. It's just this like little old man. (laughs) And so the sound is immediately deacousmatized and in the same instant reacousmatized to the actual wizard standing at the levers. And... What's great about that moment of Prince of Darkness is we start with a deacousmatized sound. Hello, hello. And then we see the, what it, the sound is attached to. So it disambiguates the sound somewhat. It doesn't explain the garbling. But then the sound is deacousmatized again when it's revealed that his whole body was full of beetles because what was, what, what was making the sound? So it creates this continuous sense of the uncanny. It, it pushes forwards this idea of incomplete or insubstantial knowledge of the events going around. Absolutely. With that particular scene that Will was just describing, um, that, that was actually the scene that I opened my thesis with, because I think it, it um, as, as Will has nicely described, I think Carpenter formalizes a lot of these ideas about insubstantial knowledge or um, this kind of defamiliarizing of self from body. I think that scene is particularly horrifying in the way it mobilizes these ideas that, again, we see recurring a lot in H.P. Lovecraft's fiction. I, I describe in my fiction and my thesis as humiliating the human. So this this idea of um, and Carpenter deploys imagery throughout the film to kind of urge us to see humans as closer to insects than we might like to by virtue of the the effect of the satanic fluid on uh, human consciousness and things like that. But seeing this character who earlier we presuppose him, of course, or assume him to be a complete and whole person. And there's this um, process through which the scene shows him to be a composite of 
parts. And that's kind of what the film is about, is that uh, the universe is constituted of these chaotic parts in a way. Or if there is an order, as Will suggested, it's not an order that would offer us any comfort. This idea that all matter is kind of guided by or dictated by antimatter, which to the best of our human um, knowledge systems is, is satanic. And in the context of this film's theology, that's a very bad thing. It's interesting how um, uh, this film at one point, there's a very specifically placed conversation about Schrodinger's cat. For those unfamiliar with Schrodinger's cat, it's a logic exercise, right? Where the idea is you have a cat inside a box. You can't observe the cat, but there is a pellet of poison that has an exactly 50% chance of being released. And therefore, the cat is both alive and dead to an outside observer at the same time because it is unobservable. This film essentially uses it to, I think, both tip its hand thematically, where it is, again, about literal unknowability. And I think it's also used as just a device to explain the nature of quantum physics, right? The the way that the randomness of it, the chaos of it makes it unknowable. I want to contrast that actually with another film that uses Schrodinger's cat very prominently, which is uh, the Coen brothers, a serious man. Um, Another film that is essentially, I reference this film a lot because it's, I think it's very, I, I, I like it's existentialist bent, but that film uses it, I think in a way that, lines up with Prince of Darkness in some ways and not others where um, Prince of Darkness kind of posits this unified theory. <laughs> it's almost a single unifying theory of, of uh, Judeo-Christian theology and quantum physics, whereas the serious man uses it to illustrate the question um, of whether or not essentially there is a God. Um, and if they're, you know, in that film, if there is a God, it's horrifying because then why is Larry suffering so much? And why does evil exist? You know, the question of evil. Uh, if there is no God, then that's equally as horrifying in that film's philosophy, because then he's just at the whims of an indifferent universe. But both kind of traffic in that unknowability uh, and use that exact same logic exercise in different ways, which I find. I find that interesting in and of itself, because I really appreciate the way that Carpenter essentially turns this whole film into an illustration of what exactly about quantum physics is scary, at least to me. <laughs> what you were just talking about to me um, gets me thinking about um, it, actually it builds on a couple ideas that we've been discussing. Will was talking, I think it was Will was talking about the way we build knowledge collectively earlier as well. Yeah. Um, so that the nature of this unknowability and collective knowledge dovetails to me nicely into the film's dealings with um, its contemporary socio-political milieu. So something I talked about in my thesis was the way the film I think is, at least um, coyly or in an abstract way, engaging with the satanic panic of the late 1980s. So specifically, I think back to a lot of the scholarship that has surrounded the McMartin daycare trial, which was apparently the longest and most expensive criminal trial in the history of the United States legal system. So it was a very significant and and all-encompassing trial. And what's interesting about this trial is that these far-right figures were alleging that there were child murderers and sacrifices occurring on the premise of this daycare. And ultimately, there were tunnels dug in and around the daycare, excavations, and nothing was found. So what ultimately I think the satanic panic gestures to is this search for this external horror or this external threat ultimately comes back to the self. And I think that also relates to the film's dealings with mirrors. So there's a kind of circularity or um, an unknowability to the process of seeking out the source of horror. 
I don't know if that's a kind of convoluted thought, but it just got me thinking about the satanic panic. Yeah, if if I'm the satanic panic is really interesting um, because it, I think precisely because of what you're saying is it's kind of in the same lineage of uh, as a lot of kind of popular mythology, right? The idea that evil is not something that we're capable of; it is something that the other is capable of. In the satanic panic, it's Satan, <laughs> but this can be easily be, you know, anything from monsters to some kind of outside spiritual force to this is applied even to political movements. I mean, part of, I think, the theory around how we portray, for example, things like Nazis and fascism is the idea that if we portray them in a certain irresponsible way, we are othering them and therefore absolving ourselves of any possibility of wrongdoing, of becoming that horrifying. And I think part of the horror of antimatter is that it is just a reflection of us. At least antimatter, I want to say, in the John Carpenter universe. Yeah, no, totally. That that also builds on um, this idea that Stephen King posits about these two models of horror uh, narratives, that they, where basically the evil comes from within or the evil comes from without. I think in Prince of Darkness, it's kind of both, maybe. I don't. I actually don't know how to resolve that. Like the horror is definitely located within our material reality, but then everything we assumed to be our material reality is false. And yet the film doesn't take the kind of obvious route of kind of having the characters be overly morally gray, right? Um, the characters aren't like on the edge between like, you know, evil and good necessarily, although a lot of them aren't, you know, they aren't the sharpest tools in the shed maybe, <laughs> but they're, they're not. kind of jackasses, but yeah, they're Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, like like the, the, uh, the male lead, or at least the the male breeding lead is kind of is kind of a, a jock you know he's a bit of a chauvinist but um the characters are never really implicated in the obvious way as far as like the you know like satan going uh, i am you you know the the whole um the whole twilight zone ending of like you know mm-hmm. the most evil creature in the universe turns out it's man um th- there's never that moment that's not the Twilight Zone. That's actually the future. I'm a parody of the Twilight Zone called the Scary Door. I want to <laughs> specify that. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I, because I and I think that's actually part of what like um, to me makes the film a little bit more special is that its concerns are not so locked into this kind of solipsistic view of horror. And I think sometimes horror can be con- constrained by um, overly, I guess, social concerns that are too anchored to a specific socio-political moment. I think Prince of Darkness has uh, more cosmic concerns. And of course that comes from its HP Lovecraft lineage. I'm really interested in the way that this film in my mind, at least lined up with a lot of kind of, can we call it the golden age Italian horror <laughs> where mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, the horror in this film comes from the fact that the evil does not seem to follow rules. Um, there's no, there's no single mechanic uh, that you can lay on to the actions of Satan and anti-God in this film that make a whole lot of sense. Right. I mean, if their goal is a disinterested need to take over our universe, then why are they so like almost over overly cruel in their you know deployment of that and often inefficient that 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 sort of thing and um even decisions made by the you know the protagonists often don't make much logical sense and this really did remind me of the kind of works of like fulci and argento and and uh, how the the thing that makes their cinema kind of scary to me is that i can never really explain it <laughs> 
Um, It's almost, it it really does feel like the um, work of someone trying to obscure exactly as much as possible so that you can have that baseline of coherency while still having the kind of appearance of and the feeling of kind of a waking dream where you can't quite remember exactly what went down. This ties into the unknowability thing um, and the um, epistemophobia, I think, quite nicely. I, I guess one quick uh, thought I would add is that I think you're totally right. Like, um, if I remember correctly, John Carpenter cites uh, Argento explicitly as an influence on Prince of Darkness. He's definitely an influence in general. I, I mean, he's very vocal in his love of Argento. So I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I think there's that kind of... Um, I guess, anti-logic in Prince of Darkness, which I tend to love in horror films when there's a kind of disordered um, nature to the mechanics because it it does um, ultimately upend our customary expectations of like things like character agency. Character agency tends to matter a lot less in horror narratives, I think. I think my favorite moment in any Argento film is like, I think it's probably one of the least well-liked scenes from Suspiria, which is when the main character, I forget her name, is talking to one scientist about witches and supernatural phenomenon. And he's saying like, oh, that's that's nonsense. We're scientists. We deal in the realm of like knowledge and truth and the knowable. But this this is a little bit outside of my realm's expertise. You want to go talk to that guy. He he he's a little bit more knowledgeable on the specific stuff. And she walks over to him and he immediately says, of course, there's witches. We all know there's witches. This is, a, you know, <laughs> this is a, this this world is a matter of fact. I love that moment for its direct contradiction, and I feel like it it lies at the heart of how Argento, his films aren't just explicitly like nothing is logical, anything goes, but they just set up these contradictions of logic, and they're they're quite precise in which logics they choose to follow and which they choose to disregard. Prince of Darkness specifically connects the movie that I thought about most with Prince of Darkness was the beyond. And my assertion that Prince of Darkness depicts an ultimately ordered universe might partly be a matter of contrast to the beyond, because in the beyond, it depicts the universe as distinctly disordered. It neither discounts nor affirms that the world of hell and the devil and demons is spiritual or physical or whatever. It is basically a, a despairing film about the complete inability of humans to know themselves, to gain knowledge, to become better. <laughs> it's it's really sad. But that, in contrast to Prince of Darkness, which is about characters who are basically decent, characters who can learn, who do procure knowledge about a a theology where Carpenter doesn't just ambiguate it, but he actually comes up with concrete ideas that materializes theology, like the, the, the big example I keep returning to is the Christ alien idea. I think that's what makes this feel almost like a response to that brand of Italian horror, of that illogical or disordered Italian horror, is that Carpenter is fascinated by a disordered horror, but he has his own particular views on it and his own philosophical approach to it that manifests in Prince of Darkness. I I kind of have a counterpoint with The Thing here, which is interesting. The Thing is a great, I think, signifier of how conscious kind of a move this was towards a more uh, almost surreal, dreamlike state of horror, where The Thing in The Thing 
the alien, um, the extraterrestrial has a very specific set of rules. Those are never deviated from uh, maybe once or twice. There's like little moments that are like, whoa, but in general, we know exactly how the alien works and the film falls through on that, which makes it feel more in line with like maybe our Cronenberg film where usually there's a specific set of rules that govern that world. And we're just seeing the pieces on that board play out as they would. And it's always horrifying, but nobly horrifying. This is so totally different from that. And then I don't even know where in the mouth of madness lies on that. It's, I just watched it. It's just so bonkers. It almost feels like the ending almost feels like blazing saddles, but as a horror movie, (laughs) (laughs) I think that a point about surrealism is a really good point too. Like John Carpenter openly cites Jean Cocteau as one of the main influences on Prince of Darkness as well. So I think, yeah, definitely both the Italian horror and Cocteau influencer are present there for sure. Right. I, I, I want to jump from this to a really great example of how the film sets up disorder and incomplete knowledge, which is it's, to me, completely extraordinary opening 10 minutes, mm-hmm. the, which is... The title sequence, this movie has a 10 minute title sequence and I was, I was just stunned by it. I I love it, (laughs) but it depicts a number of scenes which refuse in any way to complete a premise. So we, we receive, uh, you know, parts of characters, details and backgrounds. We see, I think first an old man in a monastery on his deathbed. And he has a little, a, a cute little chest on his, like a, a tiny little treasure chest on his, uh, on his belly. It's very cute. And then we get the title, Prince of Darkness. And then we get scenes of students walking around. And then we get a couple more titles. So it's, at this point, it's a fairly conventional title sequence. But what's amazing is that we keep, we cut back to the monastery and they sort of talk about, oh, the, yeah, he passed away. And then Donald Pleasance's priest character looks at a diary that the guy kept. But then we uh, we cut to a class that a university professor is teaching, and he talks a little bit about quantum physics. And then we get another title card, and, and these scenes get longer and longer without actually providing us the premise. These, these circumstances never really converge meaningfully in a way that we can fully understand. And these credits keep on arriving to remind us that the film hasn't even really properly started. This was really striking to me because the idea of a credit sequence that you continually forget is a credit sequence that provides you scenes that refuse to lay out the premise or stakes of the film in any sense, that set up kind of some of its characters and kind of some of its iconography. And in ever-lengthening distances, I think sets up the idea of a film as just a strip of film with incomplete knowledge at its center. Even, even I think, the f- I think if I'm remembering right, the final scene before the credit sequence ends and directed by John Carpenter comes up is the professor and the priest meeting each other and the professor saying, can you bring all your scientist guys to stop the devil? And even when they meet at the end, we get the, the, these two threads converge kind of, but the stakes are still completely indistinct. And this is 10 minutes into a 100-minute movie. This is 10% of the movie where we have no idea what's going on, where the rules of a credit sequence are being bent in front of us, where the notion of 
film as an unbroken strip of information is being confused for us. The effect of what's done is just amazing <laughs> and is such a great hook, especially if you know nothing about the film going in. The phrase causality violation is a really frightening phrase. I just want to say. When did someone say that? That's the, that's the last line in the film. It's um, you're seeing this for the for the purposes of causality violation. It's <laughs> menacing. It's so horrifying because you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, no, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> One of the scariest things about that, too, is that whoever is sending that message from the future presumably doesn't realize that a causality violation has already occurred and failed. Right. And that them yes. sending these subconscious messages into the past is not is not apparently working. <laughs> True. My, my kind of my kind of like personal interpretation of, of that whole thing at the end is that they've like at best kicked the can down the road on the apocalypse. <laughs> and, and and now it's just a different permutation, but the same thing is going to happen at some point, um, which I think is actually if that's if that's anything, if, if that was an interpretation that is that is intentional I, th I think that that's kind of how i view life i guess <laughs> yeah you know, that, that's that's a dark dark view on the human condition i think yeah i think it's an intensely pessimistic movie i i don't i can't think of any optimistic reading of that ending as you said at the beginning <laughs> Devin. like i just i don't i don't see one i i was i wanted to build off um will's thoughts on the opening credit sequence and weirdly yeah. enough on this latest rewatch i had the same thought it just dawned on me how long it runs i mean i've seen the film so many times but i just became acutely aware of how much time had passed um i think it's really interesting that the centerpiece of that opening credit sequence is birak's monologue birak is the professor that we've been talking about where he kind of lays out the philosophy for the film um and i i tend to actually be really allergic to this trope of um uh, academics in films spelling out the themes usually it's really ham-fisted and clunky but I think this is one example that's just really beautifully written and executed. And it could be the placement within the film that, it, that it's so kind of um, disorienting and displaced from any narrative events in, in any specific way. But I love the way Carpenter doles out that philosophical information through the lecture on the nature of quantum physics. I think it's, it's, it's also kind of, um, it works in terms of the mechanics of horror as well. It establishes this sense of unease immediately. I've talked a little bit about that top space and I've talked a little bit about that bottom space and the top space is explicitly and overwhelmingly scientific and the bottom space is explicitly and overwhelmingly theological. And that middle space of corridors, while it has, you know, crosses in it because we're in a monastery, most of it is quite plain and blank and the rooms are fairly empty. And I think there's a lot of details of that space that makes it an interesting choice for the end of the film. Because if the film ends in that realm of totalistic scientific knowledge on the top floor, then I think that, has, that would signal one particular set of interpretations of how Carpenter reads this narrative. And if it took place in the chapel at the bottom, then I think that would bring a whole different set of interpretations forward. But the climax takes place in those corridors. The tube with the devil liquid in it is moved into those corridors specifically there's not really an explicitly logical reason for them to do that because they just move it there so that the liquid can shoot into the mouth of a woman and become and make her satan incarnate 
But there's no other than that, there's no real obvious reason to do that besides the philosophical nature of the space. And the space itself is a space of doors. It's a space of many spaces, right? You have all these separate rooms that are compartmentalized off of each other. You have a central hallway, which is itself compartmentalized. And as soon as you enter one room, the only way to exit that room is to exit out into the hallway itself. When different characters are in different rooms, they don't know where they are relative to each other. And even within rooms, frequently, characters are walled off from each other or unaware of each other. And I think this is really, really interesting relative to the film's idea of knowledge, where it is rejecting the totalistic common sense kind of knowledge that I think has dominated the idea of scientific thinking for centuries and placing it into a a context of incomplete and compartmentalized knowledge, right? These doors, I'm, I'm going to call them portals for now. Like the, the original meaning of a portal is a doorway or an entrance or passage. So these portals that are all throughout the hallway are all different steps into different realms of knowledge, but you can never have all of the knowledge at the same time, right? Just when you start to grasp it, it slips away, as Danforth says early on. There, there's characters who tunnel between the spaces, so there is some room for connection, but the characters are occupying different places. They don't know everything. It becomes even more interesting in the little pocket mirror that the reincarnation of Satan pulls out and she looks into it and it starts glowing brightly and she says, Father! And she actually reaches her fingers through it into the realm of antimatter, which is pure blackness. And that introduces a different kind of portal, right? Like a, the, a portal that's more in the sense the fantasy sense that we tend to think about portals today. And then there's this big full-length mirror that she ends up reaching through and trying to pull the anti-god through into our world. It is undoubtedly not an optimistic reading of knowledge that this space exists, that the anti-god is stopped by someone having to, or temporarily stopped by someone having to sacrifice herself. And especially that the mirror again arises as a explicitly pessimistic idea of a portal in the film's ending. But on the other hand, the characters do ultimately master the navigation of these different spaces within a space, which I think signifies the idea of collaborative knowledge over totalistic knowledge. I think Carpenter is at least signaling an an ode to intellectual humility in that choice of environment for the last act. Although although the humility doesn't extend to the priest who ends the film saying, his ex- I forget his exact wording, but... I stopped it. Yeah, he ends the film saying, I stopped it, I stopped it. The film takes pains to build this collective effort. That feels like the one time the film... The film has this kind of critical eye towards the catholic church the entire way through but in a weird way the critical eye is filtered through this incredible alternate universe interpretation that is so clearly different than the world we live in i mean i would be very surprised if the catholic church actually was a bunch of (laughs) quantum physics nerds um but um the one time it seems that it feels like carpenter is like like just straight up being critical of that ideology is that moment at the very end when the priest 
takes credit for everything. He he wipes away all the accomplishments of the scientists and the fact that someone specifically sacrificed herself. Exactly. And, and the film, I think, is implying there that, that that cycle of hubris of the Catholic Church within the film it repeats. Right. Um, he doesn't actually do better than his predecessors. He's just we're just going to repeat that cycle of maybe a near miss kicking the can down the road. Yeah. And that seems to align with um, this. Uh, I guess I, I think Carpenter has a certain um, fondness for or respect for uh, community based resistance throughout his filmography. And this kind of plays into the siege motif that he's so prone to engaging with. But so many of his films have groups of people um, working towards some kind of collective action against an external threat. Although in the apocalypse films, I think it's complicated by the fact that the threat manifests itself within the group and the group ultimately all hell breaks loose. Definitely in, in Prince of Darkness, all hell literally, literally breaks loose. But in The Thing as well, I mean, it's this kind of total pessimistic breakdown of the group these these men all just become paranoid these kind of ciphers of aggression paranoia distrust um and and kind of self-preservation in a way or even uh, denial which i think is uh that's what claims most of the early victims right is an utter denial of the situation i wanted to bring up while we're talking about the apocalypse films a film that i kind of get why it's not Carpenter doesn't include it in his apocalypse cycle when he discusses it, but I, I, it would, if he did, I, it would absolutely fit, I think, is They Live, mm. which personally might be my favorite John Carpenter film and deals with a lot of these things, I think, in a, an overwhelmingly optimistic mode. And it was the first film he made after Prince of Darkness. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to me that he excludes it from his apocalypse cycle, and I wonder if it's because it's so blatantly optimistic in tone both the film in general and the ending it's kind of a comedy <laughs> it's <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean it, it it it'd be weird if your apocalypse cycle of like utterly despairing horror films you know suddenly you're watching and then you get the bubblegum line i mean <laughs> apparently sam neill he approached in the mouth of madness like a comedy because he thought it was really funny <laughs> I, I definitely get like at least possession sam neill vibes from that movie he's oh, yeah. doing the he's doing the, the thing <laughs> <laughs> they live rules though that's a yeah, oh, yeah. great anti-capitalist movie it's so good oh yeah mike has a thesis that delves into a lot of these ideas and more about prince of darkness and the apocalypse cycle in general see the show notes yeah well we're gonna link it in our show notes mike is there anything else that you'd like to plug of yours um i guess i could mention uh my debut novel comes out in february i don't know when this will be posted but february my debut novel shelter for the damned is coming out through journal stone so keep an eye out for that that's it thanks for joining us mike this was a lot of fun yeah Yeah, thanks thanks so much thanks guys that was super fun this has been a film philosophically Thank you for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, subscribe to it. And hey, rate us and review us on the Apple Podcast Store to help other people discover it. If you want to come on the show, or if you have an idea for a topic, or if you just want to ask a question about an upcoming topic and have us answer it on the podcast, you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. See you around the bend. Bye.